hello and welcome to Cityscape's brand new podcast, Cityscape Wire, where we're taking you behind the scenes of the dynamic world of women in real estate. I'm your host, Tanisha, and if you've been following us, you know that on this podcast, we're embarking on a journey through the Middle East and North African region, unearthing the stories of trailblazing women who are redefining the real estate sector. On today's episode, I'm talking to Magda Mustafa, a pioneer in her field and one of architecture's biggest advocates of autism-inclusive design. An associate professor of design in the architecture department at the American University of Cairo, Magda authored the world's first research-based design framework for autism, which was not only presented at the United Nations, but is now used across five continents. In this episode, Magda tells me about her passion for social architecture, the lessons she's learned as a woman in a very male-dominated industry, and passes on some sage advice to young architects. Well, Magda, welcome. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much. It's lovely to be here. Yeah, I'm so excited to talk to you. Um, I mean, I've just been looking at your career. You've made quite the impact. I mean, not only are you associate professor of design in the architecture department of the American University of Cairo. But I mean, you're part of Progressive Architects, where you specialize in autism inclusive design. You've authored the world's first research-based design framework for autism, Aspects Design Index, which was presented at the United Nations and is now being used in five continents. I mean, it's quite an impressive body of work that you have. Thank you so much. It's so exciting to be here and to talk to you about all of this. Well, you have a passion for social architecture and believe that great power comes with being an architect. Tell us about your journey, one, to becoming an architect and two, to really getting involved in social architecture. Well, my journey, I mean, I've been reflecting on it quite a bit these past few years. But I think early on, my parents, my father is a a medical practitioner. He's a surgeon. My mother is a scientist and an educator. And I think there was, growing up, there was so much of a culture of integrating profession with social good and seeing how your professional life and, and the way you spent your time could be invested towards serving others, whether it's through education or through health. So I think it has always been part of just the ethos and culture of my family and my upbringing. And how I came to autism specifically, that type of work, is also a little bit of a personal story. So in 2002, I was working on my doctoral dissertation. I was a mother to a young child. She was just born. My husband and I had just started working together in his architectural firm that later became Progressive Architects. And we were approached by a a group of families, parents here in the Middle East, to design, at the time, one of the very first autism education centers in the Middle East. And I had no awareness around autism, and there was very little awareness in the community around what autism was, how it was diagnosed, and especially what an architecture that would be supportive of autistic children could look like. So I began the exercise of designing that school by doing some research and looking into if there were any codes or practices or best 
best practices or standards anywhere in the world. And I remember reaching out to the International Building Codes Council that is responsible for setting this type of policy globally and receiving a letter from them that said that they do not have, nor do they know of anywhere in the world that has policy or standards around designing for autism. And that began the entry point into my work. I found that architecture and the role it plays in people's lives just lent itself so logically to supporting the autistic experience because autism and architecture intersect on the notion of the sensory environment. So at that time in 2002, there was research in the autism world about the role that sensory perception and how individuals process sensory inputs plays a role in autistic experiences. And when you think of the sensory world around us, it is architects and designers who are deciding what that input is. Designers are deciding what we see, what we hear, what we feel, what we touch, how we move through space, and all of those things put together create the sensory experience that all of us have in our spaces. So it seemed to me like a logical connection. It also seemed to me that a lot of the work being done at that time to support the autistic experience, particularly in learning environments, was around the output. So how can we support children to process better that sensory world that they are being immersed in? And very little work was being done at the time on thinking about the input. So what I proposed in the work that I did early on was how can we adjust that sensory experience first to optimize it so that the individuals on the spectrum within those spaces wouldn't necessarily struggle as much in processing the type of sensory information that they had. And in that way, we could support their experiences and their lives and their learning and so on. So I pivoted in my doctoral dissertation. I was working on a proposal. I had been in the middle of putting together a proposal and very close to being examined um, for my comprehensive exam on a completely different topic unrelated to this. And some wise advice from my father-in-law, who himself is an incredibly established and just an encyclopedia of knowledge in the architectural world, he advised me to do something with my research that was implementable and practical and had that kind of social impact on real people's lives and addressed a real gap in the architectural field. So I pivoted to this new topic. I had some incredible support and since the theme of our conversation today is around women, I had incredible support from my thesis advisor, uh, Dr. Zakia Shafai, who herself is a pioneer in the architectural world. She passed away a few years ago, but she was one of the first female architects to be registered in Egypt. She was one of the first females to enroll in an architectural school in Egypt. She was the first female chairperson of a department of architecture at any architectural school in the Middle East and Africa. So she was an incredibly supportive woman and helped me make that pivot and supported throwing out almost two years of work oh, wow. to do something new and different. I'm also quite shocked that there wasn't much research in the architecture field up until that point. I mean, 2002 wasn't that long ago. No, I mean, two decades ago doesn't seem like a long time in architectural history. But mm -hmm. when you go back in 2002, I've since 
discovered working with the larger autism community of researchers, clinical psychologists, and medical professionals, and education professionals from around the world, that 2002, around that time, was a very significant time in the history of autism awareness. It was around that time that we were starting to see those very sensationalistic headlines, particularly in the United States, that talked about what they called the autism epidemic, which was a little bit of hype. What it was, at least from what my colleagues have shared with me, it was a broadening of the understanding of what autism was. So it wasn't as if all of a sudden there was this explosion of autism in our populations. It was just that we now understood what it was and were able to diagnose it and provide assessment for it better. So in 2002 was around that time where those diagnostic tools were being broadened. So the awareness exploded around autism and the prevalence rates went from, I don't know the exact numbers, but they went to from like one in 500 to one in 100. And it wasn't real prevalence, but it was just a better understanding and better diagnosis of, of individuals on the spectrum. So that's what I have been calling the peak cohort. So in 2002, it was those children that were being diagnosed then was that larger population. So a few years ago, I was asked to develop the Autism Friendly University Design Guide to help universities and higher education campuses think about how they were going to create architectural environments and built environments to support that cohort that is now in their 20s and in their late teens and coming into higher ed. And I'm also seeing workplace environment requests to rethink how we bring autism into the workforce. And I'm seeing a rising awareness in healthcare spaces, how we can better support our aging population who is on the spectrum. And I expect very soon I'll also be, and it's already starting, a request to support assisted living as parents of that peak cohort are aging. There is now a need to create supportive assisted living for those 2002 young individuals who are now have aging parents that are moving into senior assisted living and can no longer be their primary caregivers. So we're seeing this model of satellite autism assisted living in parallel with senior assisted living because some of these individuals as they grow and as their parents age and as the parents who were their primary caregivers are aging, they need increased support. So I think it's an interesting just trajectory. But since then, the good part of the story is so much awareness has grown around that. Well, if we delve into a bit of the details, especially for those who understand autism and neurodiversity, but don't understand how architecture can help with those with autism, can you just explain how, how design can help? The basic principle, as I explained earlier, is about this sensory design um, intersection. So if we think of the built environment around us, and if we think about what we sense and how our sensory experience is constructed, it's around decisions that are being made by architects and designers. So what level of daylight comes into my space, the sound and acoustical performance of my space, the color that's selected, the textures that are around me, how I navigate through a space and find my way independently through a, an architectural space or a built environment or a city, all those are decisions that are made by architects. And all those together comprise the sensory environment that all of us live within. So 
from the autistic perspective, and many individuals on the spectrum of autism have a atypical way of sensing the environment, which means that certain inputs can be overwhelming or overstimulating on the one hand, or they may be seeking stimulation on the other. So. The work where autism and architecture intersects always falls between what we call sensory avoidance and sensory seeking. So it's all about curating a sensory environment that provides those moments where we can take out the sensory inputs that are unnecessary to tasks or are overwhelming and can present a barrier. So, for example, if I'm creating a workplace environment. The acoustical environment can play a tremendous role. So that's just one very quick example. So our responsibility as autism-friendly designers is to provide the supports for architects and for clients that are thinking about these spaces, whether they're workplace environments or healthcare spaces, to organize and manage that sensory environment in a way that it is not a barrier and also can be a place of joy for people on the spectrum because. There's a lot of talk around universal design and how can we create one solution that works for everyone. But my friend and colleague Chris Downey, who himself is a blind architect and does a lot of work around architecture for the blind, always reminds me that individuals with disabilities and individuals with different needs also have a right to universal delight. It's not only about access and functionality; it's also about joy and comfort and. Ability to be an engaged and and equal member of a community. So, understanding the role that the sensory environment and the architecture of those sensory environments can play in those lives, I think, is really important. Wow, I mean, that's yeah, that's so true. Well, let's talk about your work aspects, and let's talk about the global impact of aspects, both here in the Middle East and, of course, just globally. It was born from that very first research, and then about a decade of iteration and refinement and application in different contexts. So, aspects is seven architectural criteria or principles or characteristics. I call it a framework. Some have called it guidelines, but I don't like to use the word guidelines because it's very prescriptive and limiting. It's more of a framework or a lens through which you need to look at the environment and issues you need to be aware of, and then manage in different ways in designing the environment. So the seven principles are acoustics, spatial sequencing, escape space, compartmentalization, transitions, sensory zoning, and safety. And I can talk a little bit about what each of those mean. Independently, if it's interesting, but the way it has been applied, and I've been very proud and happy to see how it's been applied in different ways. So perhaps the most common way it's being applied is that it's being provided to support academic work around designing for autism and neurodiversity. So a lot of students and teachers of architecture assign aspects and the different articles and and material that's been written about it. To their students as foregrounding for how to think about architectural space. So on a weekly basis, I'm always happy to receive questions and requests from students from all over the world to help support th- them thinking through how they can design in their own classrooms and studios at their universities. I'm even even seeing 
K-12 education, senior high, seniors at high school reach out to me and say, I was assigned this assignment and we found your work and like to talk to you about that. And so that's the most common way it's being used. But Aspects is also being used by architects themselves who have been confronted with projects where autism and individuals on the spectrum are central to their user group. So many of those projects I'm involved personally as a member of a larger architectural team and also architects themselves have referenced aspects as a framework to think about their own work on autism and neurodiversity. It's also been used in building typologies and for user groups that don't necessarily identify or intersect centrally with autism. So for example, I have a colleague and friend, Abe Rogers, who works as a brilliant UK-based interior designer and architect and furniture designer who has referenced concepts of aspects. And we've talked about the intersection of aspects with his work on healthcare design. So he designed one of the famous Maggie centers for cancer patients and notions of escape, notions of sensory sequencing, notions of transition spaces, but particularly escape spaces are really central to his work and that intersects with the aspects notions. And then later on, Abe and I and many, many other people collaborated on an award entry for the Wilson's Economics Prize that looked at the hospital of the future. And we were lucky to be to receive first the first prize of that award. And Abe led an amazing team of doctors, of clinical psychologists, of social workers, of educators, of parents, of patient representatives, just to think about how we can use architecture to envision a hospital in the future that would better serve larger societal needs. So I was involved in a very small piece about how aspects and thinking about healthcare spaces through the lens of the autistic experience could potentially benefit all patients and other patients. So there's interesting intersections. There's also intersections with there are people who have used aspects as a framing to design for aging, Alzheimer's and dementia for other cognitive challenges. One of the things I'm proudest to see is how when you think about designing a space through the autistic perspective, what happens is you end up creating a space that's more inclusive and more accessible for almost everyone. Which is exactly what we need. (laughs) Well, looking here at the Middle East, when it comes to autism, neurodiversity, what are we seeing? Are things changing rapidly? Are institutions, schools, hospitals, universities quickly adapting now to, I suppose, making their places more neurodiverse? I am seeing a shift. It was slow at first, if we think from that 2002 date, but it has since really exploded across the Middle East. And it starts with this shift that we're seeing in the Middle East towards more social justice and inclusion just generally. So it's beginning with with the intent to be more inclusive for different abilities and different identities of individuals and spaces. And a lot of times I see the intent comes first, but then the knowledge has to catch up. So I think there's no question that the intent is there and the awareness is there across the Middle East that we need to be more inclusive of neurodiversity and autism in all of our spaces, education, uh, cities, 
workplace environments, higher education, residential, I mean, all of our, of our built environments. I think what's missing is that knowledge base of what then it looks like. So one of the things that I think is perhaps contributing to our struggle to make it more mainstream, although there is a lot more work that's happening across the Middle East, is what I call the conceptual model of what disability is and the disability model and where we are in the Middle East compared to the rest of the world. Internationally, people have moved towards what we call the cultural model, which is individuals on the spectrum taking agency over their identities and saying, yes, some may see us as different, but that's different and equally valid. And it's just a different way of saying seeing the world. That's good because it's almost like a changing mindset, which is great. I mean, let's quickly talk about the future of design for the neurodiverse. During COVID or post-COVID, we saw how quickly the workforce, the global workforce changed when it came to just adapting the workforce to, to ensure that social distancing was there, to ensure that there was a balance at, at, at work. How quickly will we see this being incorporated into the, the workforce over the next few years? Well, interestingly, COVID actually catalyzed and accelerated a lot of thinking of the values of thinking about neurodiversity and autism at the workplace for many reasons that we just observed. So COVID was a very sad and unfortunate, but in some ways an interesting global social experiment where everyone magically all of a sudden, almost overnight, completely changed how we work and how, how we engage. So there were a few observations that came out around that time. Some of them were very negative. So I had friends and people in the autism community that I was and remain in touch with who are saying we finally had routine and structure and our young individuals finally were taking the bus on their own and going to their jobs and signing in. And routine is very important for the autistic experience because it gives predictability. So taking that away from them was very sad because it took away something that they'd worked so hard to build. And many people that were just at the cusp of that skill building were were going to lose that skill and it would have been very frustrating and hard to get back. So there, there were a lot of negatives. But of course, I always try and look at both sides of the positive and the negative. There were a lot of positives as well. I had a lot of people in the autism community tell me they actually were much more comfortable either working remotely or engaging remotely, particularly around, for example, healthcare. They didn't have to go to the stress and anxiety of getting to a healthcare provider, they could do telehealth or teletherapy that was easier for them. Another space where COVID really made us rethink how we engage with the built environment and that was informed by the autistic experience is how we research the built environment. So I've been over the past few years doing, been doing a lot of design thinking workshopping and I conducted two or three workshops in person immediately prior to in the couple of years leading up to COVID. And some of them were successful, some of them not so much, just because the design thinking method is so immersive and social and verbal and visual and can be very chaotic because it's about this, this notion of you have to create a creative environment for collaboration and it's very immersive and there's a lot of inputs. And that isn't very accessible for the autistic mind and the autistic experience. So 
we tried to tweak a few things in the real life version of that. And then when COVID happened and we were forced to continue working on these projects, but we needed to do these workshops remotely online, a lot of the individuals that were participating in the workshops independently got in touch with me and shared how much more accessible working online with these design thinking brainstorm visioning sessions worked better for them because they had more control. They could manage what they were seeing on the screen. They should. They could manage if they had the camera on or off. They could manage what they were listening to and their volume. And most importantly, they could manage how they engaged. So they weren't forced to only engage socially and verbally. They could type in a chat. They could raise their hand. They could go offline and come back to us later and give us input on a shared vision board that remained up and remained digital. Things were typed as opposed to scribbled. Things were drawn in a more organized way rather than just thrown on a whiteboard. So in many ways, COVID helped catalyze that thinking. This is Cityscape Wire. Let's switch gears slightly here. Speaking as an architect who has been in the industry for just over two decades, would you be able to share any challenges you've encountered? Uh, Architecture is a very male-dominated industry. Of course, that has been changing over the last few years. But when you did start, what are some of the challenges you've encountered working as a female in a very male-dominated industry? I think a few things. One of them is what we call an assumption of competence. So in many spaces, a male architect enters exchange with clients or with other architects with an assumption of his competence. At many times, I've found that as a female architect, you have to first prove that competence. You don't start from a point of an assumption of competence. And I mean, I'm very grateful, of course, for all the opportunities that I've been given, but I see my male colleagues, particularly when I was younger and not yet as established in the field, being able to enter more seamlessly with almost a head start because they would enter a room and people would assume that they knew what they were talking about, as opposed to a woman coming into the room where there was perhaps more skepticism and not that people weren't open to a woman being able to do what a man can do. They were. And if you were to ask them, I don't think consciously in their minds they saw any difference. But you, I could always sense this subconscious difference of starting point. I think that's also compounded with the intersectional identity I have as an Arab Canadian. I'm Canadian Egyptian. So as an Arab woman, in either context, a Middle Eastern context or a Western context, I think my intersectional identity is confusing for some people because with each of those identities as a woman or as an Arab woman or as a Muslim woman, I think come also some levels of assumptions of competence or incompetence or some biases that are unconscious that I've worked very hard to navigate. And I'm, again, very grateful for the opportunities I'm given and the people I work with have never made me feel less than my male Western counterparts at all, but we operate within a larger world. So it is sometimes a bit of a struggle. One of the positives is that from the education standpoint, there are so many young women in the architectural field of education. And 
so many of them go out and do such amazing things. And I have the privilege and the opportunity to be one of the few female educators that they have experiences with. So many of their instructors and professors and advisors are, are men. So to be able to be one of the few that they do work with during their time in education and before they go out into the field, I think that's a tremendous privilege for me because I'm seeing this shifting as women are getting more empowered um, in practice. Well, that's great, especially if unconscious bias is slowly being burst, if it were. Well, what advice would you give to young female architects starting out in the field? They need to assume their own competence and they need to not be apologetic about being assertive in what they know and what they're able to do. So I have a few rules in my studio classes where I teach, and one of them is you can't use the word sorry unless you have actually done something wrong. Because I find so many, particularly female students, that begin a question, a perfectly legitimate question, sorry, I have a question, or sorry, uh, I know that this isn't right, but I thought I would ask. And there's nothing to apologize for around not knowing something. What also frustrates me that I try and encourage the young women that I work with to do is a lot of times they actually do know and are capable and are making a brilliant suggestion or have a creative insight and they still apologize for it. I would like to eradicate that entirely and see young women just own their creative abilities and own both what they don't know, not as shortcoming on their part, but rather as an opportunity for them to learn something new and learn how to do something new and not be ashamed around not knowing everything. No one knows everything. And I'm always careful to model that to my students. So I will tell them, if they ask me a question that I don't know, I will tell them I don't know. I can maybe help work through where we can find the answer together or who you can talk to to figure it out. But there are things that I don't know. I don't know everything. No one knows everything. And I think it's important for young women to see women in the field being able to own both what they don't know, but also what we do know. And when it comes to spaces and places and bodies of knowledge that I do feel competent in, I think it's important for young women to see that we are comfortable in that competence and that comfort is that we're willing to learn more about it and we're willing to revise ourselves and we're willing to develop. So for example, when I published Aspect's first version in 2014, when I went back and did the Autism Friendly University Design Guide and in the process of working with neurodiverse students, autistic students, autistic adults, an autism self-advocacy group who were the stakeholders that co-produced this guide with me, I realized that there were elements that aspects just didn't capture from the architectural environment. And we revised aspects and published a new aspects 2.0 version that expands the original list of seven. So I think it's an important balance to be able to say, yes, I know this, but I know that this can change or this needs to grow or there may be a different opinion that we can work with. So assertiveness is not arrogance, but what I want young women to learn is to be comfortable with being assertive in their knowledge and their skill and their ability. That is fantastic advice. What are some of the big lessons that you have learned personally being a woman in, in the industry? 
I think one of the lessons I'm starting to learn now is not everything is related to the lens of my identity as a woman. There will be experiences that are just what they are, and not to always assign everything to the fact that I am a woman. So to be open to cr constructive criticism, to be open and really listen to those who are put in your path to teach you something new and to have you reflect on what you're doing and not to be defensive about any input or, or collaborations or just to always be open to learn more and to grow and to develop. And that's something I'm finding as I start collaborating more and more with others. The other lesson I've learned is in knowing what you know to protect what you know as well and to take ownership of it. So one of the things I did a few years ago was to register a trademark for aspects. And a lot of people think that that was a financial decision. It wasn't. And it isn't about leveraging knowledge for money or for financial gain, but it's about taking ownership over the intellectual contributions that we create in the world. And I think that's important to be able to then know how people see the work that we've done and how they utilize it in their own work and be able to share that with us, not to monitor it, but on the contrary, to improve it together and make it better and make sure that we can evolve and develop. So I think the lesson that I've learned is to remain open and to listen, particularly and most importantly, to the autistic community. Because there's a famous saying in the autism world, nothing about us without us. So this idea of an, I'm always very uncomfortable when people use the word expert or expertise, because I think you can't claim expertise entirely if you don't have lived experience. So, so many things that I've done recently are around co-production, are around collaboration with autistic voices and with thinking about different problems and spaces and places with autistic individuals themselves, because from the very beginning of our work, the autistic experience was the source of where we first began thinking about what could architecture possibly do to support the autistic experience. So the very first thing I did was sit and observe children in their built environments for almost a year in their environments and in even some of their homes. Some of those parents were so generous of their time and experiences to share with me that they invited me into their homes to observe their children in their spaces. So I was able, the, I always say autistic individuals are the first designers of their spaces and they are the first authors of aspects and anything that's came out of it because Every concept, I was just an informed observer. I was just an architectural observer, and I took the tactics and the spatial solutions that autistic individuals and their families were creating ad hoc and informally in their homes and in their school. I was just architecturalizing it. That's all I was doing. So, for example, Escape was born out of time and time again, seeing young children on the spectrum have a corner in their living room behind the couch where they would go with some pillows and cushions and a blanket over their head that became their little retreat. Or a tent, like a little 
toy tent that parents had put in a bedroom where the children would go to when they felt overwhelmed, or a corner in a classroom behind a bookshelf wedged between the wall and a bookshelf, this little tight space where children would retreat to. So I was observing again and again the way children were using and creating their own little escape spaces, so we just formalized it. So it's examples like that that I think is the biggest lesson, that as architects, I at least don't think of us as experts or authors or even creators of space. We're facilitators, we're negotiators, we're moderators between the needs of individuals and the technical abilities of what the built environment can provide for them. We're translators. I, I always say when I find myself in the position to be a subconsultant on a project, a lot of times I'm the cultural translator between the autistic world and the architectural world. That's my role, to bridge what autistic needs mean architecturally and what architectural design means from the autistic perspective. So that's one of the big lessons I think that I have found over the years is the greatest value in the work that we're doing is to listen to the communities that we are claiming to design for, but to listen authentically with an assumption of competence and expertise too. So it's not about uh, need or pathology or treatment or cure, it's about expertise. It's about looking to these environments for their expertise of what they need in their spaces. And also it's about the other openness to listening to critique and conversation from my colleagues that work in different spaces and, and, and different worlds of cost and budget. How much does it cost? How can we make this affordable? How can we get a return on the investment of investing the money? How does this work with material sciences? What materials do you need? Technology. So to be open to looking at the different realms and how they could critique our work so that we can move forward to create a more robust, authentic tool for autism. Well, let's talk about uh, mentors now. How important are mentors, especially in young, well, young professionals' lives? And who are some of your mentors? Well, my one of the most important, significant mentors of mine was my thesis advisor, Zakeya Shafei, because she was just so brave. And I think she was one of the first women who I saw being unapologetically assertive about her own abilities. And she is one of the pioneers in healthcare design. She was at the cusp of evidence-based design that came out of the UK around healthcare space in the 1960s. And she was just so, I mean, God rest her soul. She was such a strong presence in the studio and in the practice and in, as, a, as leadership, and she showed a kind of female leadership that I thought was so unique. And I learned leadership from her that is, is assertive, but is at the same time not oppressive or forceful. That, that she, she taught me that you to be a leader or to be a practitioner, practitioner in a male-dominated world, at least in her experience, wasn't about trying to be masculine. You could still own your femininity and there is a strength to femininity that is different. It's, it's a different form of leadership. And I think that's a lesson that was very important for me. I also have a colleague who I worked with for years at the International Union of Architects named Jana Revedin. And 
She is an amazing woman. She works with UNESCO. She's a practicing architect. She's also an educator. And I remember her once, and I don't even know if she'll remember this. I'll see her next week in Venice and maybe I can ask. <laughs> Remind her. <laughs> but I remember her and I were both giving important talks somewhere in, in some conference. Uh, I can't even remember which one it was because we've done so many together, so many International Union of Architect events together. And I was very nervous right before I went up to speak. And it was about something that was very core to my work and something that I should have claimed competence and expertise on, but I was very nervous about it. And she is such a confident speaker and the way she holds herself and again, feminine assertiveness. She's always very quiet and very mm -hmm. measured in the way she speaks. But as I was going up, she said, you look nervous. Why are you nervous? I said, well, it's a huge audience. There are all these experts. There are all these people who are my superiors in this organization and, and very well established in their own fields. And I'm afraid what they'll think of my work. She said, well, you should see yourself the way we see you, which is there's a reason why they've invited you to speak here. And it's because you have this knowledge and it's because they feel you're the best person to speak to that. So trust that. And that is their invitation. So why are you questioning it? Why are you questioning yourself? And why are you questioning they wouldn't have you here if they didn't think you were the person to talk about this subject? So that advice of see yourself the way your audience or your community sees you, I think is very important. Gosh, everyone needs that person in their lives. Yes. That's wonderful I mean, advice. I was, I was so lucky to have her and I'm very grateful. And, and she's just such a, an incredible, again, feminine leader that I think is, is really important. And I don't want it to be on, only about women because I think male mentors are equally important. My my father-in-law who convinced me to change my topic. And I think many other young women may have broken down had they received the critique that I received about my original dissertation proposal, which he thought wasn't, wasn't valuable. He said, this has, I'm a practicing architect. This is not valuable to me. What, what can I use this for to design a project at my office tomorrow? And I could have taken that and personally and felt offended and felt that he was unkind. But what I did was ask him, so what would you find useful? He said, well, think of a problem that needs to be solved. So I told him about this project. And he said, yeah, that's it. There, here is a need from a real project with real clients with a real design application now. Figure that one out because that is applicable. And we didn't think it would ever go any further than that one little school, but that has made my career. And there's another colleague, a chairman of our department at the American University in Cairo, who was coaching me through my tenure, my tenure application in when I was exploring the different publications and the different areas I was researching and the different grants I was applying for. And he gave me one piece of advice. He said, make the focus. You're... You're doing too many things and you're spreading yourself out too thin. You need to carve a space for yourself where you can be the expert on rather than knowing a little bit about everything. So his one piece of advice of focus early on in my academic career also was a big shift because that's where I made a decision to take that early work that I had done and publish and explore it more and research more and apply for more grants and and it was really hard at the beginning because there was so little awareness. I had to 
pre preface every grant application or every proposal with what autism was because people didn't know. And it was really hard, but I think it was, I'm glad that I took his advice. It, I didn't take it again, that defensiveness, that advice I give to women to be open to critique that it isn't always about they're discriminating against me that I'm a woman. No, sometimes it is genuine. There is genuine, authentic mentorship and guidance there. No matter if that is coming from a female voice or a male voice, you need to be open to hearing it and listening to it and digesting it and seeing what works for you and what doesn't work for you, of course. But I think you need to be open. So if I hadn't listened to those different pieces of advice, I don't think I would have made that shift and, and, and done what I'm doing today. Wow. I mean, that's quite the message. Yeah. I, I, I think that's a, such a valuable lesson uh, though, to understand. You're right. That it's not just about your gender or your, the color of your skin. Take advice where, where needed. Constructive criticism is so important. And you've had, yeah, two wonderful lessons that have seen you through your career. That's great. Well, finally, what would you say is the highlight of your career? I'm sure you've had many, but if you could pick one highlight of your, your career, what would it be? Wow, that's a tough question. I think the highlight of my career has been, and it's not a single moment, it's a series of moments that luckily are growing, is every time an individual on the spectrum has reached out to me and said that the work that I've done or an essay that I've written or a talk that I've given has resonated with them and is meaningful. And I think that the highlight of those multiple highlights was one experience I had at the As I Am, which is an autism self-advocacy group in Ireland. They're the National Autistic Society in Ireland. They are a group of self-advocates. So their CEO and their board, most of them are on the spectrum of autism. And a lot of people who work there and work with them are on the spectrum of autism. And they, I was giving one of the keynotes at their conference a few years ago. And one of the other teams of speakers were two incredible women, Georgia Harper and Sam Ayrn who themselves are autistic. They are both autism advocates based in the UK who work on policy. They've been doing such incredible work as self-advocates and as women on the spectrum themselves. And they gave a talk after one of my talks on architecture for autism. It was the first time we met. We had not spoken before. And it was the first time they had seen my work or heard of my work. And they, after their keynote, were asked a question by their moderator, if you could propose one piece of policy that would be carved in stone, that would become law all over the world around autistic needs, what would that be? And they said it would be requiring the built environments to apply some of these design solutions that Magda just proposed to us. And when I spoke to them afterwards, one of them looked to me and said it had never crossed our minds to ask for changes in the built environment around us. And these are two very well-educated, very capable women who understand the autistic perspective from the perspective of policy and what they need, and they're advocates. So they are some of the most educated in, the, in what autism needs from the world. And when they said it had never even occurred to us that we could ask, just like our colleagues in wheelchairs can ask for a ramp or an elevator to get to the spaces they need to get to to carry out their daily lives, it never occurred to us that we could ask for a different built environment for our needs, even though we know that the built environment plays a big role in us being able to access certain spaces. 
But the fact that these two incredible advocates and incredibly capable women hadn't even occurred to them and that I was able to play a little role of bringing that into their lives, that I was very, very proud of. And as a consequence of that conversation and that keynote and my relationship with As I Am and their organization and their CEO, Adam Harris, who, although he's younger than me, I would say is also a mentor. I've learned so much from Adam and how able he is to craft a message about what he needs as an autistic young man, but what his community needs from the world around him. One of the most recent highlights is Adam presented in front of a parliamentary group in the Irish parliament, a proposal for there to be legislation that requires built environments to include autism-friendly design criteria, similar to what we would do for wheelchair users or deaf or blind users of our spaces. And he referenced in that aspects as a possible framework to start thinking about that policy. So that is kind of the climax of this highlight of autistic voices and lives and experiences that I've had the privilege to get to know throughout my career. Well, well, thank you so much, Magda. This has been this has been just wonderful and informative, and I'm so impressed with the work that that you've been doing in the autism spectrum around the world. And I just wish you all the best of luck. Thank you so much, Tanisha. It's been great. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this podcast, then tune in every month where we'll be speaking to inspiring women from all walks of life and at various stages of their careers exploring their challenges and uncovering the secrets behind their success. Join us where we'll be breaking down barriers and bridging gaps in the world of real estate. This is Cityscape Wire.